0: Welcome to Centering, the Asian-American Christian podcast. I'm Jane Hong.
1: And I'm Tim Sang,
0: And we're your hosts.
1: This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian-American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi. Welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller's Asian-American Center. I'm Tim Stang, Pacific Area Director of InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian of American religion with a focus on Asian American Christianity.
0: And I'm Jane Hong, a historian of 20th century U.S. immigration and foreign relations. And I'm currently writing a history of how post-1965 Asian immigration has changed and is changing U.S. evangelicalism. So today we're very honored uh, to have Bishop Roy Sano with us So Bishop Sano was born in Brawley, California in 1931 um, of immigrant parents from Japan. He's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church or UMC and has served local churches in Southern and Northern California, as well as in New York City. Bishop Sano studied at UCLA and Union Theological Seminary in New York. He pursued further studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and Claremont Graduate University. So lots of study. (laughs) Bishop Sano has also served as chaplain of Mills College in Oakland and taught the History of Religion and Asian American Studies from 1969 to 1975. During that time he also directed PACS, the Pacific and Asian Center for Theologies and Strategies at Pacific School of Religion where he also taught from 1975 to 1984 before being elected a bishop in the UMC. He was assigned to the Denver and Los Angeles areas from 1992 to 2000, Um, Since his retirement in 2000, Bishop Sano has lived in Oakland, California, near his children and grandchildren.
1: Welcome, Bishop Sano. It's such an honor to have you with us. I remember fondly when our paths crossed while I was on faculty at the Graduate Theological Union in the early 2000s. And um, I'm a fellow Union Seminary alum, so it was great. (laughs) Back then at the GTU, there were more than 10 full-time or adjunct Asian-American professors, and that was quite an experience for me. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah, it's good to join you folks. Fascinated with your new ministry doing, doing this. Thank you. It's, it's, it has been quite a journey, and it's wonderful to have you here. So to begin our time, uh, could you share a little bit about your youth? Um, Jane mentioned that you were born in Braley, California, which is actually pretty close to the Mexican border. I, I checked on the map. Uh, and then when you were 11, your family was incarcerated at the Poston Camp. Um, So how did this experience shape your faith, how you thought about your ethnic identity in in relationship to your faith?
2: Well, because I was only 11 years old when uh, we went to camp, I was very naive (laughs) and had only a a narrow perspective, superficial perspective. My naivete was evident when um, I accepted the explanation why they sent us to camp. It was for our safety. (laughs) And that made sense because of the violence, of hysteria and hate that me and uh, my my family and I experienced um, really violent events. Um, And so once we were in camp, uh, my uh, parents being devout Christians took the experience in very positive ways. And uh, we never discussed the camp in our family. I also had uh, other kinds of experiences that were positive that colored my viewpoint. We didn't go to school from March (laughs) when we entered camp until the following fall. So we had a great spring and summer break from school. And I also enjoyed my uh, enjoyed my Sunday school class because I had a wonderful teacher, who also took us out camping to the Colorado River. And one other thing I remember well is the way my peers and I played Buck Rogers, <laughs> the early crude version of science fiction movies, <laughs> and we would act like we were riding uh, spaceships and so forth. But anyway. Despite all those uh, positive perspectives that I looked at, it was only later that I came to realize the injury that had been done to me personally, and also the depths of the violation of uh, human rights that we had endured. But there were also, as I was saying, those positive experiences, and we can come back to the impact of that later in my adulthood or in my adolescence and teenage years.
1: Thank you for sharing about that. You mentioned in your biographies that shortly after the camp experience, you had a conversion experience at a meeting at the Chester Heights campgrounds in Pennsylvania in 1947, and your pastor, Reverend Chester Buzzard at that time, uh, gave an invitation and you responded. And, And you said that your response was not so much about forgiveness of sin, but about acceptance or could you say a little bit more about that conversion experience and how that might have colored you the rest of your career or vocation?
2: Yes, well, you summarized it very well. When I h- highlighted acceptance in my conversion, it stands in contrast, of course, to the rejection and the hatred that I experienced, and as well as the um, gracious and courageous gesture of Christians. And my teacher in camp, once uh, we were going to leave camp, said to me, uh, in effect, this is my summary of the impact that she had in the way she lived. Uh, incidentally, she was a missionary in, uh, to Japan, but before the war came, she was asked to come home. And because she felt called to serve Japanese people, she looked for a job to work with us and <laughs> came to our camp. Houston, desert, blistering heat dust storms and cold winters and when we were going to leave as I was saying uh, she called me forward and rose from her desk and uh, announced my departure and then she turned and hugged me and I melted in her arms <laughs> and you can imagine my peers what they said <laughs> after that <laughs> you let an old woman hug you <laughs> and, And you cried, (laughs) but after the scuffles and many years later, I realized the impact that she had in the way she lived. And so I would say that she taught me that people can do what they want and call us all kind of nasty names, but uh, she was saying, in effect, I am a child of God. And that acceptance is paralleled with numerous other gestures of Christians that are just too much to tell at this setting. And so, when I went forward to the altar to receive Christ, I think I was doing in a very tangible way, taking a hold or making indeed a part of my life all of the acceptance that I had received. It was only later that forgiveness of sins, which we call justification, and growth in graces which we call sanctification, became a part of my life. Mm -hmm. And those are generally associated with conversion. But for me, prior to doing that, I would say it was the acceptance of this acceptance from others Mm -hmm. behind which God of grace was involved. Because I received that, then I could go on and confess my sins and pray God's help to live a better life.
1: Now that's such a wonderful story. I have found that to be so true from not, not just myself, but many other Asian Americans I've come across. That oh. feeling accepted by God seems to be more important than, feeling a, than, than getting the sense of forgiveness of sins. But yes, uh, that, if we could turn our attention, because you have had such a storied vocation as a church leader and a theological educator. So if I could just shift our attention to to 1963. (laughs) A month before I was born, I came across an article that you wrote for the Methodist layman. And in that article, at the time you were a pastor at the First Methodist Church in Loomis, California. So before I share my question, let me share a little background. At the time, the Pacific Japanese Provisional Conference of the Methodist Church had been existing since 1940. And Japanese Methodist ministries started in 1878 in Hawaii and San Francisco. But before the formation of the Japanese Provisional Conference, Japanese Methodist churches were part of, I think, an a Pan-Asian Conference, known as a Oriental Conference. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But in any case, by 1963, a decision was made to merge the 31 Japanese churches of this Provisional Conference with the Annual Conference of the Western Jurisdiction by 1964. And you wrote an article in response to that decision. So even before the Asian American movement became a thing, you were advocating for some sort of a responsible integration. Could you share a little bit about what you were thinking about it? Maybe say a little bit at the same time about what was going on in the Japanese churches in the 1950s.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, if I may go back, the Japanese provisional conference was uniquely Japanese. There was a provisional conference of Chinese, Korean, and Mexican-American, they were combined together. They were integrated before we were, right? Now, <laughs> let's see if I can remember your question, oh, what, what, I, what I was writing about and what it would meant. Well, to understand the background, because we were um, treated with the incarceration and rejection and humiliation, after the war, we really wanted to integrate and integration was in the air. Uh, It had to happen on every front, and the denominations were really embarrassed that uh, they had a racially defined church structure, (laughs) so they were antsy about getting us integrated, and as we came to it, however, the question I was raising was when we disband the provisional conference, will we abandon our interconference partnerships and continue our ministries? You can't expect, for example, an annual conference to carry on language ministries for our women, <laughs> Issei women <laughs> in Japanese, in annual conferences, so we push for uh, a more you know, a cross-conference approach. And that was the origin of the uh, caucus movement. And so that we brought ourselves together. Well, we originally formed a network of Japanese Americans. And then later on, with the rising identity of Asian Americans, we then started to work with Koreans, Chinese, Filipinos, and it became more Asian American. And uh, we formed that caucus in uh, 19... uh, I think it was 1972.
0: Now, this is really important, um, this debate within the United Methodist Church. And I, you know, I've had the privilege of, of interviewing you, Bishop Sano, for my second book. Um, in this discussion, I write about it in my first chapter. It's, it's the question of ethnic specific conferences within mainline churches. And I know this wasn't just a UMC or United Methodist Church debate. I know similar conversations were happening Within the Presbyterian Church and other mainline denominations. And so I, I write about this because I think it's so important. Because in some ways it really does, it kind of foreshadows similar debates that would happen within evangelical organizations and churches later on about kind of ethnic ethnic specific ministries versus integration. And I know these terms, you know, Bishop Sana, you lived through the civil rights era. So, you know, the terms segregation, integration, they have particular connotations during that period. But, you know building on kind of what Tim was asking, maybe we can talk about um, kind of your work with the Asian American movement and the Third World Liberation Front and then talk about how it impacts your work within the church. Because I know that one of the things that you really did is you brought much of the sensibilities of the Pan-Asian kind of Asian American movement. You wanted to bring those sensibilities into the church and really fuse Christian identity and ethnic and racial identity in healthy right, and productive ways. So can you tell us about your work with the Third World Liberation Front movements and the Asian American movements in the late 60s? I know from my conversations with you that you were both in LA and then back in the Bay Area. So in LA, I think you were at the Claremont School of Theology during this time. And I remember you said that you worked with an Asian American studies working group where students were trying to bring Asian American studies classes into the theological classroom, right? Into the seminary classrooms. And then there's a wonderful article of you. And, and so maybe this actually brings our questions together. There's an article written by you in World Outlook, which I guess is the United Methodist Church's, one of its magazines. And the title is, yes, we'll have no more bananas in church. And you wrote this in, I think it was August, 1969. And I just wanna read, maybe I'll just say one thing. I'll read the blurb that's at the very beginning of the article, and then um, we can go from there. But the blurb says: A Japanese-American churchman says, the white man's idea of integration is to make all yellow-skinned people think white. He argues for an assertive Japanese-American church that will capitalize on the desire of Japanese-Americans not to be totally assimilated into American culture. And there is a wonderful image of you, so there's a photograph of you with this article. So you're at a protest or a picket. So the the caption says, the author joins other Oriental Americans in picketing Dr. S.I. Hawakawa, acting president of San Francisco State College. And you're wearing a sign (laughs) that says, our arch enemies, white racists and Uncle Toms, not white radicals. So there's so much, this article, I mean, I've read this article maybe like 10 or 15 times while writing this first chapter in my book, because it's just, it's just such an amazing piece and an amazing image. So I wondered maybe if you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in these movements, the Asian American movement and the Third World Liberation Front movement for ethnic studies, and then maybe talk about how that influenced your work within the church.
2: Well, Go back to the time I was in Los Angeles, Uh, I was there until 1969. So that meant the Asian, at least the Japanese-American caucus, was already beginning to form. And by the way, if I could slip in a biblical (laughs) foundations for this. I used to compare the story of Ruth in the Bible with uh, Esther. Ruth's story is a story of a Moabite that Jews hated. Uh, Married a a Jew, but he died. And so she goes with her mother-in-law, a Jewish woman or a Hebrew, back to the homeland and eventually marries a Jew. Now that's a model of uh, integration, isn't it? (laughs) An immigrant going to a foreign country and marrying the people in the host country, intermarriage. That's good story for, uh, very assuring for immigrants. I mean, we could make it in the foreign land (laughs) and even contribute a great grandson, uh, King David, (laughs) who was a descendant of Ruth. Well, later on when they were taken off as captives in foreign lands, there's a story about a woman, a Jew who hid her Jewish identity and actually won a beauty contest, we could say, and even married the king. There was a story that uh, a man was going to try to exterminate the Jews because they were becoming so numerous in that foreign country. And Esther's uncle told her, you have to get the king to stop this. And so she violates... Protocols at the risk of her life, and goes in and tells the king about the plot, and the king reverses the plot and saves the Israelites in the foreign land. Well, I felt we as Niseis <laughs> had essays that help us get into the society some and measure, but once we were in the land of promise <laughs> or in a foreign country. We needed to watch out because there are legal and paralegal and customs that would uh, harm us. And so we had to stand up. And so I used to say, we need to shift from the story of Ruth as immigrants to the story of Esther to stand up for our own people when adversity was coming our way. Now, that's what I was meaning by the image of banana. By integrating, we could uh, incorporate values of the whole society so much that we lose our whole identity our, or who we are. In those days, we used to say those people were bananas, yellow skin and white inside. <laughs> and we picked it up from African-Americans who said, you know, those uh, Uncle Toms they are black outside and inside like uh, Oreo cookies. <laughs> and so Oreo cookie was a symbol for them and potato was a symbol for mexican americans and uh, a red apple was a symbol for native americans that that's the background of the banana once i left la and as you said i did join the effort to start ethnic studies at uh, ucla i came up to uh, mills college which had uh, gone through an ethnic study strikes like other campuses in the bay area and so they, they had convinced the administration to start an Asian American Studies program. And I just picked up the material that came out of UCLA and used their roots volume and used to teach courses on our history and social analysis and uh, of the uh, issues of racism. That's the background of my involvement in ethnic studies at Mills. And naturally then, because of the proximity, we did support efforts on the campus at FS State. Lloyd Wacke, one of our Methodist ministers, even used to strike with (laughs) them, And I never did join the strikes there, but I certainly did support it, you know, in our Japanese American community. And so I never did work directly with Third World Liberation Front, but was certainly supportive of them in their efforts. That may explain how I came about (laughs) from the perspective of faith as well as uh, social consciousness that we had to uh, push ahead with a resurgence of our ethnic identity.
0: You know, that's something I think Tim posed earlier that maybe I, I'll follow up on. It's just in thinking about ethnic and racial identity and Christian faith, how did how did you see that relationship kind of playing out during the late 60s, early 1970s? Because, you know, I think one thing that I know in reading your work, um, you know, you did say that the experience of Japanese American incarceration, right, was really pivotal to to kind of making that relationship very concrete that you, you always kind of saw your faith in relation to your ethnic identity and that those two things were inseparable, right? They were connected. And a lot of it I think had to do with the fact that, you know, God was very intentional. As you mentioned earlier, God was intentional about creating you as Japanese American. And so when you think about your Christian faith, you always have to think about your ethnic and racial identity as well. And so I just, I found that really uh, powerful because you were writing this in the 1960s, 1970s, right? And I think nowadays we still have these conversations, right? Obviously, we're doing this podcast precisely because we're still having these conversations, right, about how ethnic and racial identity relate to our Christian faith. I mean, we know that they do, but it's so hard to articulate that relationship um, as clearly um, and elegantly as you have.
2: Well, I I think it goes back to creation. When God created distinctive creatures, he distinguished them and separated them and called them by name. There's a naming involved in being created what we are. And then in the New Testament, let's remember, churches remember in Acts how ethnic identity was a real factor and they had to deal with it in different ways for example should they ask gentiles to become jews to really become christians that is should they be circumcised well church said finally came out and said no let's let gentiles be gentile christians and jewish christians be jewish christians and then paul of course in his missionary work was very clear that he was writing to a distinctive church in Corinth or Ephesus or Galatia or Rome. (laughs) And so there, you know, particularity is a part of being a creature of God. To assume that we're just sort of a general humanity or a general Christian is to overlook some very important features that say something of what we ought to be doing and who we are. So I, I hope that helps to lay the foundations in faith of why particularity should be there. And by the way, I used to feel when they were talking about disbanding ethnic churches, I wanted to but never did. <laughs> I wanted to say to them, look at your own ethnicity. You are white people. And you have your own ethnic church. But anyway... <laughs> uh, As I say, I I sort of harbored that for years. (laughs) And I I still think it's important for white churches to realize their ethnicity. I hope that addresses, uh, if, if evangelical Asian Christianity is struggling with that, I hope they can see the biblical and theological foundations why claiming the distinctiveness of our identity is a very appropriate thing to do that is to live as God created us and said who we are with a distinctive name and the current name for many of us is Asian American.
1: That's fantastic. I I think that the issues that you have been raising and discussing are live with us today even for white evangelical churches especially maybe for the white evangelical churches. Some American religious historians who are looking at the Asian American experience find a root the Asian American Christian um, caucus movements, for example, and the political theories, left-wing political progressive theories, Marxism, socialism, and they leave it at that. So based on what you're telling me, it sounds like the roots of this movement for Asian American um, affirmation and, and representation among Christians was rooted a little bit deeper than that and maybe more in biblical Thought. But, but in any case, what would you say to those who would argue that the caucus movements and Asian-American movements are, among Christians are nothing but politics, and we Christians shouldn't deal with that? Yeah, right. Well,
2: ethnic studies on college and university campuses were indeed oftentimes more favorable to Marxism. But uh, I read, uh, I can't think of his name, Milton Gordon, talks about the way Marx overlooked ethnicity. See, German social uh, sociologists, Marx and Weber, were working on social realities of societies that hadn't experienced different racial mixing for how many years or how many centuries? So they completely overlooked the racial factor not to say also the gender issues, and uh, that that insight really made sense to me those sociologists that the u.s and other european countries followed couldn't see us because these founding figures of sociology couldn't see ethnic differences and so that's why we were invisible i don't think we we fell for that marxist assumption very definitely. It was because of our Christian faith, as I, as I said. I don't mean to be flippant. And I'm really happy to hear that evangelical Christians are aware that white evangelicalism may not really be saying what needs to be said in our communities. And I think that's really beautiful. Do our homework and reformulating our faith and our calling is really a wonderful development to hear.
1: I'm glad to hear that too, and and it's good to have jumped <laughs> to the co- contemporary context. But before we move even further in the, along the line, I, I could I bring us back to just one more, um, or maybe two more conversations about the past. Um, you know, I I was involved with the Asian American Baptist Caucus movement and uh, was very very close to your colleague, the late Paul Nagano. Um, so I I know that that movement in itself that started in the '70s was really important in mainline denominations such as Methodists, Presbyterians, American Baptists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Reformed Church, and others. And while each of these movements were focused on each denomination, there were also efforts to work ecumenically across denominations. And and one of the areas of Asian American ecumenical cooperation was in theological education. So the Asian Center for Theology and Strategies, uh, originally called ACTS I believe it all started in 1973, I, I'm not sure about the dates, at the Graduate Theological Union. And the word Pacific was added to it, so to include Hawaiians and um, Pacific Islander Christians. So the center became known as PACS. And uh, I'm Bishop Shatsano, you were very instrumental in starting PACS. Um, would it, I think it'd be really helpful to hear uh, what, what was the vision behind it? What was it all about? What did you hope that it would accomplish? And what did it accomplish? Um, and what is, it, what is its legacy? Yes, well,
2: actually, it was uh, Reverend Wilbur Choi, then the district superintendent, who was a leader in the Asian-American caucus movement in the Methodist Church, who called uh, about six of us Asian-American clergy together, James Chuck, uh, Dennis Wu, all those two <laughs> come to mind immediately, a Presbyterian and American Baptist. And we had uh, lunch together in Oakland in 1972, and he, with the uh, ethnic studies movement in, in progress, asked us, don't we need to be doing more theologizing in our distinctive way, you see, because we were raised under the influence of the towering people of uh, the mid-60s, uh, from the 30s to the 60s. Most of us were trained in theology in that era. And that was the sort of the neo-Reformation or neo-Orthodox uh, theology. And it really catapulted us right out of our community, I have to say. <laughs> so he thought we needed to start doing our own theology and realize that if the churches can ordain people only after they have a theological seminary, well, clearly we have to start changing theological seminaries to do a better job training people for our community. Um, and that's how it developed and uh, after that uh, summer when he was elected bishop and he went moved up to uh, seattle uh, others of us continued what he initiated so the assumptions the basic assumptions i would say for packs before and in packs theologically was first of all asian american communities are present and are growing and they're not going to disappear. Now, leadership for those communities inevitably include clergy. By the way, churches are the most pervasive and persisting institutions in our Asian American communities. And sociologists who study that oftentimes neglect these churches, you know. So the community and the leadership of those churches and who trains those leaders, seminaries. So that's why we focus on changing uh, seminaries, um, the courses they teach, uh, the faculty members, uh, the resources in the library, uh, scholarships, uh, administrators. We push for them for um, more diversity to include Asian Americans. And that's a a fantastic statistic you cited when you were there at uh, GTU Where PSR was, Pacific School of Religion was. My goodness, you said 11?
1: I think there were more.
2: Oh, is that right? Wow. And look today at what has happened over the long haul. My goodness, the the executive for the Association of Theological Schools is uh, Frank Yamada, (laughs) Japanese American descent. And you look at the deans and presidents of seminaries, you know, Jeffrey Kwan and uh, Mayan Fan at uh, Garrett. Um, and then you look at the production of these people in publications. Oh my, Korean American women embarrass all of us men. <laughs> They've gone light years ahead of us in doing their theology and it's wonderfully distinctive and a real substance. So that's uh, the origin, and I'm afraid I jumped ahead to uh, talk about the impact. I can't claim that PACs uh, it can claim credit for all these other later developments because, you know, these people really train themselves rigorously and establish themselves in their careers, and that's why they, they deserve the positions that they're in.
1: Uh, we can't, PAX can't claim all of that. I won't dispute you on that, but it's an important legacy that we all have benefited from, especially with the the Pax Reader that Fuller's Asian American Center is going to uh, republish. Um, I have one quick question. Jane is dying to ask another one, but I have one quick one. And this is sort of a theological question to also answer those who are critics of the the movement, so to speak. Um, uh, There's been a lot of criticism of Asian Americans in your generation of being beholden to liberation theology but based on what you've shared with the, with me and us just now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. W- would you be able to say a little bit about so, so-called liberation theology and its connection to what you were trying to accomplish to your, your vocation?
2: Right. Well, very clearly, um, it was a Christian movement in the sense that the faith and spirituality of the movement was very much Christian. If you look at the... Poetry and the songs that were written in the movement. It is clearly aware of interacting with God and neighbor and of uh, Jesus Christ and the role of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the development, for example, in Latin America, as one time colleague of mine, Robert McAfee Brown, wrote about Latin American liberation theology oh, Gustavo. Uh, Gutierrez, one of the leading figures, was profoundly religious and spiritual. And you look at uh, African-American liberation theology and James Cone, oh my goodness, who could deny the centrality of Christ? Although they want to emphasize more Jesus because, uh, well, it takes us a a little away, but um, anyway, so, that liberation theology may sound secular because we address social issues and political issues. But the core driving uh, force, I would say, was their Christian faith and grounded in the theological tradition as well as biblical foundation. Thank you. Jane?
0: I think one way to maybe wrap up our conversation, well, first let me just say, Bishop Sano, I mean, You know, learning about your work and speaking with you over the past um, couple years has been incredibly encouraging because, you know, I think um, you're really, you've really been involved in institutional change. Like the idea that, you know, the ethnic studies focus of the Third World Liberation Front and Asian American movement, the focus on bringing, you know, ethnic studies courses into the classroom. I mean, you've been really at the forefront of that push. Um, and, you know, when I think about organizations like PACS and the work they were trying to do institutionally to change the curriculum of seminaries, to change the way that mainline churches are structured, mainline denominations, I mean, you know, I think, I think this is incredibly important. And, you know, you were involved both on the grassroots side, <laughs> you know, in the 60s, but then to bring these changes into the institutions and structures. I mean, that's where a long lasting change really happens. And I think many of the developments you, you mentioned earlier, I, I do think, you know, they do they owe in part, right, to the work that you and your colleagues did in the 60s and 70s in, in real ways. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I just, I'm very grateful for the work uh, that you and your colleagues have done and the ways in which that's actually shaped the world that we live in <laughs> today as Asian American Christians. Um, thinking about, I think moving ahead and thinking about, you know, this history of advocacy and activism. So I wondered if maybe you could just, you know, conclude by talking about maybe the role that the church and um, church leaders like yourselves played in both historical and current and maybe future movements for justice. So I know, I know that the redress movement uh, in the seventies and eighties was one thing that that you were um, heavily involved with. And so I wonder if you just speak about the role that the church played in that movement and then uh, maybe think more broadly, you know, about the role that you would like to see Christians play in kind of current movements and future movements for justice.
2: Well, one movement that was very important to me personally was uh, a human rights movement. Uh, Being a US citizen born here, we had certain safety measures with our passport and immigrants from the Philippines and from South Korea could not speak up in protest to the dictators like Marcos and Park Chung-hee. And so uh, to be able to, uh, or to illustrate that point, one of the convocations that uh, PAC staged was on human international human rights issues, and we uh, took the registration, and I looked at the registration list and there were 18 X's. There were people, in other words, who could not identify themselves because they were afraid that that registration list was going to get into, in this case, KCIA uh, agents who were really operating here. Just to elaborate a one point. When I went to Korea to carry a message to one of the advocates against uh, for democracy, I was stopped on my way back. And then when I got back, a person who told me to take the message called me and said, now, Roy, you're going to get calls. And if they sound like they're Korean, get their name and their phone number and say, you will return the call later but check with me before you do that. <laughs> and three of the five were people who were identified with the KCIA. <laughs> I mean, they were operating in the U.S. with impunity. And I, I was with a, a group of uh, Korean immigrants uh, that were in denominational staff positions, and they were sharing a list, a bear, coyote, and uh, other animals associated with North America, and then a Japanese corporation name on the other side. (laughs) And they were identities, code names for communication internationally. (laughs) Now, that's how dangerous it was for them. And so it was a real privilege to support them because we were protected with our citizenship. And by the way, Elaine Kim at the Asian Studies at UC Berkeley Uh, She used to join us at um, rallies at the Korean consulate. And I have a picture of her reading a a statement. But there was a person who came and joined us at one of the rallies. He stepped out of the car with a black robe and with a huge uh, paper sack, uh, paper uh, bag over his head with uh, only eyes punched out to highlight how incognito they had to be if they joined the protests. So you can imagine some of the drama of the movement and the excitement, but what a privilege it was to carry messages to people who were off in the hills in the Philippines who could not be moving in metropolitan uh, Manila, but we had to arrange to meet in a certain place again to deliver messages. Well, you can imagine, isn't this a part of our faith? (laughs) To be concerned about the human welfare of people, that there could be self-determination in democracy. So, you know, these political agendas were real important. And talk about organizations or institutions. I, I heard earlier on that institutional considerations was not important. Well, let's remember that the scripture does speak of the church as the body of Christ. Well, you can't have a body without uh, anatomy. (laughs) Which for me, in human organization, the anatomy is an institution or the organization. And so for us to work within institutions or organizations to accomplish these international missions, oh my goodness, how could we avoid it? (laughs) I, I hope that explains some of the commitment to the institutional changes.
0: No, it definitely does. And I think it just, you know, your life is a testimony. It's a reminder of just how believers, how Christians can engage um, in justice and fight for human rights, uh, fight for people in our domestic society, but also people globally. Thank you for sharing um, from your life today. And just, you know, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insight um, into this history. And we really, we wish you God's richest blessings in your future endeavors. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. So may I just add one point? Uh, you were talking about the future. I, I picked up Bill Gates' book, uh, How to Avoid Climate Disaster, because when I read the review of it, it was very clear. We really need to get with that kind of movement in addition to our racial struggles. That's a canopy that we really need to address. But. Uh, and talk about future directions for our faith and action. To me, that is the major forefront. Thank you again. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast.
0: You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash centering podcast or your favorite podcast app.
1: Go in peace. And remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are.